So I want to continue today with the theme that I opened up uh, two weeks ago and that I am intending to continue with next week, which is the theme of loving one's enemies. We could also rephrase it, you know, more in a Buddhist context as befriending people who are difficult in one's life or at least having that as a long-term intention. And it really is pointing to the horizon, really, sometimes it can seem a distant horizon of our practice, which is to move towards kindness and friendliness being our default way of meeting the world and everyone in it, without exception. And taking that as a direction. (coughs) So what I want to do today is to review some where we, what we looked at last time, which was primarily to give a perspective about this core intention. And then secondly, to suggest concrete tools for uh, moving in that direction, for working with people who are difficult, who may even be very, very difficult, or may even come under the heading of a so-called enemy. And I want to uh, dedicate this morning to the memory of my father. Today is his birthday. (laughs) And he, many of you met him. He used to come to this morning gathering. He died uh, 2000, late 2005, and he would be 91 today were he alive. So, so uh, that's for Simon. So, and there's actually a bench right outside this hall, which we um, brought to Spirit Rock, which has one of his favorite sayings on the bench. You can go out there and sit there. He would really like it if you sit out there later, <laughs> later today. So. The saying, you'll you'll find out. You can go. You can go. Go, go look. Okay. <laughs> look and you shall see. <laughs> look and you shall find out. Okay. So, this this approach of having the intention. Really, it's really the intention to move towards an attitude of care and friendliness towards all. And not having the typical dichotomy of friends and enemies. That this can seem sometimes unrealistic or impossible or or even sometimes undesirable, you know. Should we really have that attitude towards these people or those people or this kind of person and so forth? So it's actually um, a challenging theme and one that I think when we explore can actually take us quite deep, deeply into our own lives and our own aspirations. I think we know that the aspiration to be loving towards all others 
is found in a number of traditions. And last time I mentioned particularly the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Buddha, as well as the more recent teachings of people like uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. All of them give a version of this teaching. And I'll come back to this later. All of them were actually not just giving lofty spiritual teachings disconnected from reality. They all actually had very concrete enemies that they were dealing with. And of course, with Gandhi, it was the British Empire. And with King, it was the whole edifice of um, several hundred years, if not more, of racism as manifesting in, you know, in the United States. So they were working with this teaching in a very practical way, and I'll say more about that later. So we have passages from the teachings of Jesus, some of which I mentioned yesterday, like, I say unto you, love your enemies. Lust them that curse you, do good to those that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Another passage, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Which sounds very much like the Buddha's teachings on loving kindness that we know. So this, these are some passages from the Buddha and teaching about the nature of metta, which I said earlier, is really uh, probably a kind of universal friendliness. It's a deep friendliness. It has a little bit different connotations than love does in English. It's sometimes translated as that. We translate it often as loving kindness, but probably a kind of deep friendliness, like deep, persistent, universal friendliness is a better translation. And we have, again, uh, passages which really suggest this intention, and it is a practice. It's not something, okay, you should love everyone. Get it together. Bye. <laughs> it's, more, it's more that it's a practice, and we learn how to move in that direction. It's a direction of our practice. And, but the practice is really made clear, for example, in one of the core texts, which is the Metta Sutta, or we could say the Sutta on loving kindness, the Discourse on Loving Kindness, or the Discourse on Universal Friendliness, is another way we could talk about it. And we have passage like this, uh, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depth, outwards and unbounded. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. One should sustain this loving kindness continually. And we know that that's connected with the metta practice, which is we uh, were doing some in the latter part of the sitting, which is a very concrete practice that one can do 10 minutes a day, half an hour a day, one can do retreats on it, in which this... uh, increasingly open heart is cultivated. And I'll talk more about metta practice in a while. And we also have, in the more social or collective domain, we have the examples of Gandhi and King. And they uh, give different versions. Again, maybe Gandhi coming from yet a third tradition, 
the tradition of Hinduism, but very influenced by uh, other traditions, um, and saying that the basis for his approach of nonviolence is the finding that the essence of human beings is love. And that if we actually even approach our difficult persons and our enemies with care and love, because that nature is love in the long run, and the long run can be long, <laughs> so the long run can be long. It's, it's like um, King used to often quote uh, Carlyle, a British philosopher, who said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it points towards justice. So the arc of the moral universe is long, but it points in that way. Gandhi said, because our basic nature is that of love. Pretty much the same uh, teaching that we have with the Buddha or with Jesus, that our basic nature, when we go beneath the hurt, beneath the pain, there's something deeper than that, which is, uh, which is love, wisdom, um, a sense of universal interconnection. And that's the teaching which, which guides us here, really. It's a, it's a deep teaching, it's a challenging teaching. It's a teaching which can sometimes seem far off, but it's the aspiration, really, of our, of our practice. And can be made very, um, very uh, accessible, I think. Not, it's, it's both a lofty teaching and an accessible teaching, I believe. So it's helpful to really ask on that basis uh, with some more clarity, uh, who, is the, who is the difficult person or who is the enemy? And you know, in loving kindness practice here in the West, we talk about one of the categories of loving kindness practice. You know, loving kindness practice, we try to start where cultivating a sense of care and kindness and friendliness is easier. We start with self, typically, or with someone we feel very warm towards, and then we gradually go towards a neutral person, a so-called difficult person, and uh, ultimately everyone, all beings. And the category of difficult person that we, that we use, that we talk about, it's actually a mistranslation for the sake of Westerners. <laughs> If one would do a literal translation, the translation would be the enemy. We say difficult person because it kind of makes it, but in the text it, it actually would be translated best as the, as the enemy, meaning someone, again, towards whom there's some friction, polarization, and distance. And it's helpful just to see when we are practicing with this teaching who might come under the scope of being difficult. Uh, and so it's helpful to just look for different levels of maybe tension or friction or sometimes hostility. And, you know, in the loving-kindness practice, we invite ourselves to work with even minor or moderate difficulty, maybe someone at work with whom the chemistry feels a little bit hard, let's say, or with some friction, not necessarily the hardest or most difficult people. 
you know, and, and I mentioned last time that sometimes the, you know, sometimes the friction or the difficulties may have a collective overlay. There may be issues related to gender, her sexual orientation, her ethnicity, which can come from hundreds if not thousands of years of collective conditioning, which can make the interpersonal interactions more complicated or have some layer, some of which can be quite unconscious in our minds. You know, you know I know when I was, um, when I was in my 20s, I, was, I studied uh, dreams quite a lot. And I was amazed to find, you know, when I looked very carefully at, the, at dreams, I was amazed to find the dimensions of racism in my own dreams, you know, particularly in relation to African Americans. You know, it was quite shocking, you know, that there was some association with, um, with danger at times. You know, and this was, this was based on some personal knowledge, you know. And I grew up in neighborhoods which were mixed, not, not in isolated communities. But and I, don't, I, I assume that that is completely, or rather universal. You know, the, you know, I just had a lot of access to the dreams. It was, it was, that's there on kind of unconscious levels. You know, all sorts of things, whether it's race or, or um, gender, sexual orientation, other aspects of ethnicity. And that can really compound the, the uh, difficulty. I think we know that. You know, could be age, you know, all sorts of dimensions that we, that we bring in that are, that are, that are there. Um, and so we, we try to see what is there for, you know, what, what, what do I experience when I have this difficult person? And I'll come back to that in a moment. So we have the whole um, aspiration towards kindness as a default way of being, as a way of being with others. That, that is our aspiration. And then I gave four core practices that we, that we work with. That we, and I gave those two weeks ago. And they're really the basics of our practice. Uh, you know, the first is when we're with people who are difficult for ourselves, is to really make a, a further commitment to ethical precepts. To, we'll find ourselves at times wanting to violate some of the ethical precepts. And I gave the story last time of a prominent climate scientist named Peter Gleick, I think, who was just two weeks ago, the very day I was giving the talk, I saw in the, you know, in the newspaper, a prominent climate scientist had committed a kind of, what, deception, which may have been illegal, to get information from a conservative organization that was promoting, we might say, climate change denial. And he, did a, he basically engaged in a kind of fraud because he was so intent on going against his opponents. Right? And the whole thing blew up, he was discovered, and it caused a mess, right? and probably a lot of damage to his cause. But he, was in, you know, he did not have, as it were, a complete firm commitment to the ethical precepts. And there are issues we could explore there about do we always stay 100% with the ethical precepts and so forth when what about, you know, would, would you kill Hitler or whatever, you know. And, and so there, there are some complexities there. But uh, very, I think, just generally, especially when we're speaking about 
people in our own lives with whom there's some difficulty or friction, the kind of everyday difficult people that we have, I think a commitment to the ethical precepts is quite important and very important starting point. You know. uh, a second then is to work in different ways with meditation. Uh, we can really work very strongly with mindfulness. One of the great benefits of working with difficult people or people or enemy, so-called enemies, is that we get to study difficult mind, body, and emotional states. We get to study our own ways of reacting. Because, again, something that became blazingly clear to me just maybe five or six years ago when I was really focusing on how we practice with difficult people, it suddenly became clear that there's a simple definition of what a a difficult person is, which is kind of turns the tables. A difficult person, we like to think, is difficult because of the objective qualities of that person. (laughs) (laughs) They're bad, they are what? Ignorant, Ignorant, evil, uh, um, what? Narrow-minded. They intentionally hurt one. They, they like think about it, strategize, and they do something to undermine you, to be mean, including kill you. Yeah, the worst of our enemies strategize to hurt one, hurt one. But you know, others of them maybe on the more office level. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from West Oakland. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I, there's there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum. But, but on, on other levels, it's more, it's more that uh, they, huh? we think they're stupid. Yeah, okay, but let's say the, the, uh, the mind that is caught in making difficult people or enemies, and we think there's objective properties with that. We, they're stupid, they're narrow-minded, they hurt us, they're, they're just lost, they should do therapy, you know, and, so forth, and so forth, right? Okay. Undergo. Hungry ghosts. They're hungry ghosts. We have different ways. The problem is out there, right? Strong tendency when we are working with difficult people to think the problem is out there. It's an objective problem with them. I, the unfortunate one, have to deal with this. (laughs) Okay. Now, one of the benefits of mindfulness in this area, <laughs> is that we soon see that that's not a complete picture. Okay? In fact, it may be a one-sided picture, and in fact, it may be a distorted picture. Which is not at all to take the other person off the, um, what, what do we say? Off the hook. The other person may indeed really need to be responsible for what he or she is doing, saying, and so forth. But what defines a difficult person is that I have difficult experiences with that person. And that turns the tables. (laughs) Now, again, not to say that the other person may not have important work to do, has to be responsible, and so forth. But we know that some people can have certain rather 
um, challenging qualities can be all, everything we mentioned, and we may not take that person as an enemy, as a difficult person. You know? And that we may have learned how to work with someone or that, you know, for example, if someone, let's say, is a child and that person comes being very judgmental towards me, I will have a different approach than I do with someone who, as it were, pushes my buttons with judgments, right? And I may also have the experience of knowing something that was difficult for me 10 years ago is not difficult now, that I, I learned how to deal with it, maybe, and maybe with a partner, something like that, you know, because uh, I may have learned how to deal with someone who was uh, judgmental at times and say, okay, what's really there for you? you know, and it's not so difficult anymore. Or I may have learned to be with someone who um, kind of liked to contradict me all the time. You know, may have learned to work with that more skillfully. But 10 years ago, that person was quasi-demonic. <laughs> right? Right. It's interesting, right? So that key aspect that we have difficult experiences and that gives an entryway to our practice. Because that means, again, it's not the total picture. It's also important in an interpersonal way sometimes, of course, to, you know, to have the other per- to give feedback and have the other person do his or her own work, take responsibility and so forth. But a big piece of this is that we can do our own um, our own inner work. And so it's very important here to see what comes up for me with my difficult person. And so if you take a, take a look inside, think of a person who has moderate difficulty or even more difficulty, and what thought patterns or emotions come up for you that are difficult for you when they come up. Take a moment just to go inside. You know, what comes up for you? What kind of emotions? What kind of thoughts? What kind of body reactions? And I invite us just to say, let's just say with one or two words, not not a whole description, one or two words, what comes up for you? Fear. Fear comes up. Aversion. Frustration. Frustration. Irritation. Irritation. Pessimism. Pessimism. Rage. Thought pattern. Yeah. Rage. Hurt. Hurt. Shame. Shame. Insecurity. Anger, insecurity. A few more. Distaste. Distaste. Sense of competition. Sadness. Sadness. And these are all difficult to be with, right? These are difficult states for us. Especially when we might have the idea. I'm in the right. Of course. Yeah. So there's also that. That's a very common thought pattern that's there. So it's very helpful to use mindfulness to study what's there, to really uh, notice, to really notice what's there. And some of that can even be unconscious. Some of our difficulties with people may be driven by material that's beneath the level of consciousness. And I'm thinking that I'll talk more about that next time, next week. You know, then here I'll talk more about the interactive dimensions. I think next week I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the deeper inner dimensions of our own uh, difficulty with others. I think I'll make that 
make that division the way that there can be tendencies, and, and I, I mentioned this from the context of psychology, Carl Jung said that that which we don't know in ourselves, we tend to project out in the world and encounter it as demonic. That's a, a lot right there. I said that rather quickly, but that's very profound. It's that which we don't really face in ourselves. This is how Thomas Merton said something very similar. He said, it is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also and above all, our hatred of ourselves, particularly that hatred of ourselves which is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced. For it is this which makes us see our own evil in others and unable to see it in ourselves. I think I'll explore that particular theme a little bit more next time, but it's quite, it makes all of this rather complicated. There are aspects of projection. I mentioned last week, it's most obvious, we can see the dimensions of projection maybe most obviously, obviously, when we look to foreign policy between nations. All nations tend to say, I'm good, you're evil, and the, project, the projection mechanisms are intense right? and ongoing. Yeah, let me, if it's a question of clarification, if it's a larger question, I'll, maybe we could reserve it to the end. Yeah, please. <laughs> I was just wondering about the value of using loving-kindness practice with difficult people that are no longer an active part of our yeah. lives. Yeah, let me weave that in when I talk about loving-kindness practice because, you know, the, I'm, when I'm mentioning here two kinds of mindfulness practice. First... Uh, or two kinds of meditation practice, first mindfulness and then loving-kindness practice, which I'll get to in a moment. And the mindfulness practice, we get to study our own patterns. It's a big part. There's a big part of all this, which is just studying your own patterns, having the patience, seeing, okay, here was the stimulus, here's how I got triggered. We have to study our own patterns. And so, you know, uh, difficult people give us an opportunity to see things that we wouldn't otherwise see and as it were, clean up parts of ourselves which we wouldn't otherwise have access to. And so we can actually, in a sense, bow to them. It's like the Dalai Lama says, I can bow to the Chinese. You know, uh, I have learned so much. And he says, you know, they're right about some things. You know, we did have a kind of a feudal society that was, had a lot of problems with it, you know, and so forth. So there's, there's the Dalai Lama says of the Chinese, my enemy, my friend, <laughs> you know which is really the spirit of Gandhi and King. They want their opponents ultimately to become friends, you know, which actually was uh, successful to some extent you know, in, the, in their work. So, great Tibetan teacher, uh, Dogo Kense Rinpoche said it this way, in terms of the mindfulness practice and the inner work. He said, unless the inner forces of negative emotions are conquered, Strife with outer enemies will never end. Unless the inner forces of negative emotions are conquered, strife with outer enemies will never end. And so we also do metta practice. We do loving-kindness practice. We can, we try to work with it first and get it strong, stronger, I should say. We work with it, we practice 10 or 15 minutes a day goes a long way. We do the metta practice and gradually when it gets strong we can bring it into our practice with someone we have difficulty with. And it's commonly the experience, and I, I experienced this once I was doing, that, that when we come to the difficult person 
or the so-called enemy, even if the loving kindness has been flowing some, we come to the, lo- the difficult person and we may feel like a wall goes up. Because in a way, what part of what we find with a difficult person is that there's polarization. It is as if there is a wall or a divide, you know. And, and one of the things that happens with difficult people typically is that my empathy for the other person, the other person's empathy for me, that ability to actually be interested in what I'm experiencing ends, goes out the window. It's one of the things which makes this difficult, you know, that there's kind of a breakdown of the normal human capacity to be empathic, which is wired into us through the limbic system and through compassion, you know, that, you know, going back to talking about the brain, we are wired for compassion and empathy. And when we get in the difficult situations, things break down. So we do the metta practice and we can experience that. So if you experience the metta practice with a difficult person is coming up against a wall, just stay with it. It changes. I experienced, I did once did a five-week period of loving-kindness practice in the retreat area, you know, 18 hours a day of metta. I, it was really flowing beautifully. I felt happy. It was wonderful. About three or three and a half weeks into it, I turned to a difficult person who wasn't hugely difficult. It was kind of moderately difficult. And it was as if my love, three or three and a half weeks of loving-kindness ground to a halt. <laughs> it was interesting. You know, just like, boom. I can't be loving for this person. Kind of like that. But I stayed with it, and it shifted. You know, I mean, it had the momentum of those three, three weeks made a difference. I'm not saying you stay with it. Well, okay, it shifts right away. But it, in that instance, it did shift. And by the end of the five weeks, I couldn't wait to see my difficult person. <laughs> And I remember the first, it was a person in a work environment. I remember the first time I saw him, it was, just, oh, it was like I was in love. <laughs> it was an unusual experience, you know, someone, someone who's been like a nemesis in the past. I see this person and, oh. <laughs> yeah. Question, even if that person, uh, when you see them and you're in awe and love, but um, w- even when they're continuing to polarize you, well, let me let me get to that a little later. But yes, um, that that um, we can just yeah. Even if that was happening, the potential was there. the 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 question was about would that happen even if the person continued to do things that were hard for me, or was continuing to be a nemesis, which um, uh, did continue, yeah, with that person. Uh, but my attitude was different, and my especially. I had experienced a kind of a breakthrough with that person, and it made a huge difference. And, it made, and also my aspiration was clear with that person. So I was really actively knowing, every time I'm with this person, I really want to see if I can break down the barriers. And that was pretty significant. So we do metta practice. We can also do uh, practice of cultivating wisdom. This can sometimes take the shape of reflection. It can be one practice can be to reflect on um, what has led this person to be as he or she is. What is, what is really um, the causes for this person's actions? Uh, what are the causes for my actions? I can really reflect. And I can also try to be empathic, try to have a sense, what's really going on for this person 
And this can be a reflection. We, don't, we can do it in the moment, but we can also do it outside. We can actually reflect what really is going on for this person. What is that other person feeling when that person has a difficult experience for me? So we can start to extend empathy in the difficult situation. So it's not just me with my difficult emotions, but rather here we are, we're both having difficulty. And then obviously that is something which is more accessible in some kinds of difficulty than others. You know. For in extreme situations that can be harder, but I think it's still possible. You know? I think King could be empathic towards uh, white racists in the South. You know, he was. You know, he, could, he could have a sense of where are they coming from and what's their conditioning. You know, and, he, and he could know it. And there, there even, um, you know, I think of some of the songs of the Civil Rights Movement kind of pointed to that. You know, I, was thinking of even some, I was thinking of some of Bob Dylan's songs. He talked about that, you know, like some of the, you know, just the way the poor white Southerners are a pawn in their game was one of his songs, I remember. You know, so one can really reflect on what are the conditions here? What are the conditions for the other person? What really matters to this person? What's really going on when this person is doing things which are difficult? You know, there are a few beings who are completely uh, without some redemptive quality. Maybe no one, actually, even though people, it can get really covered over, you know. So we can have that empathic, empathic quality. A few other perspectives I wanted to give uh, to to add to this. Um, It was interesting that the Buddha actually had quite a few difficult people in his life. Did you know that? (laughs) You might think that the Buddha, oh, this amazing being who walked around glowing metta and dispensing wisdom and being kind and so forth, he had a lot of opposition. There's a line from one of the texts where where it has the Buddha saying, I do not fight with the world, but the world fights with me. Interesting. You know, there were, he had opposition. He had a cousin who he had really difficult experiences with who tried to kill him and tried to take over the whole Sangha, named Devadatta. It was his cousin. And uh, there's a story of uh, when the Devadatta and the Buddha-to-be, who was called Prince Siddhartha, were young. They were out in the... Um, they were out in the field. Let me see where this. They were out in the field, and they saw a swan. Let me see where the story is. They saw a swan come, and Devadatta um, took his bow and arrow, and he shot the swan, and it came down, and the Buddha. And Devadatta, as teenagers, ran towards the swan. And the Buddha was a faster runner. And he got there first. And he found that the swan was still alive. And he, he looked in the swan's eyes, and it said that he remembered how in a past life he had been a swan. And he, he felt compassion and said, and would and started to pull the arrow out. Devadatta came there and said, that swan is mine. I shot the arrow. 
And the Buddha said, no, I got there first. The swan is mine. He said, actually, it doesn't belong ultimately to either of us. It belongs to the sky and should be freed to go back to the sky. And so Devadatta did not agree, and they took the dispute to the council of elders who agreed with Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, and the swan was let go. And after that, there was a real friction between them. And ultimately, Devadatta tried several times to kill the Buddha. You know, once by having a bunch of bandits kill him, and it's reported that they came up to him, and uh, they couldn't kill him. They actually became practitioners. <laughs> a second time he had huge boulders roll down from the mountains, and a huge boulder came down, but it broke on the way down, broke in half, and the Buddha was injured, but not hurt badly by a small piece of the rock, you know. And then the last time, he had a wild elephant set loose in the path of the Buddha, who, was, who it was thought would run into him and, and kill him. But the power of the Buddha's loving-kindness, it said, led the elephant to lie down in front of the Buddha in a kind of a bow. And the elephant did not kill him. And so the Buddha had enemies. <laughs> he had difficult people. And he, there were attempts on his life, just as there were, you know, just as the other people I mentioned had very strong enemies. Jesus, Gandhi, King, all three of those were killed, actually, by, by their enemies. So there are, there, are, there are enemies. So maybe one or two further perspectives, but just to let you know that these teachings come out of real-life circumstances, that the claim is that this is a way to be in all circumstances. A few um, qualifications here. And I was thinking of a few pieces of further guidance. One of them is I think it's very important to ground in the body with difficult people. And one, and one aspect of that, I think, that sometimes it's important for us to take care of ourselves. Like all this is not about not taking care of yourself with a difficult person. So I, I, was, I want to give you a technique for protecting yourself with a difficult person, okay? So this is a meditative technique. Here it is. So close your eyes. Maybe, maybe I'll end with this and because of the time so we can have some, some discussion. So this is a technique that helps one to take care of oneself, protect oneself, because with a difficult person, all of this, what I was mentioning, are inner practices. And when we talk about interacting and being in an interactive situation, it is important to take care of oneself, to protect oneself, set boundaries at times, and so forth. Those, that's all very important. And if there's a situation where there's a fairly difficult interaction, but it's one that one can be with the person, but maybe one gets judgments coming at one, or there's negative energy coming at one, um, one practice, be there right now, and imagine you have a magic shield around you that protects you from negative thoughts and emotions coming towards you. You can think that it deflects, the, it deflects that energy. 
and see what the color of the shield is. And imagine a difficult person interacting with you and maybe saying something that normally would trigger you. And just imagine that you have that shield all around you and that the negative energy doesn't enter you in the same way, doesn't impact you in the same way, that it bounces off in some sense. If this feels useful, the shield is yours. (laughs) If that feels useful, it's something you can use your imagination. The imagination can be very powerful. It's very interesting practice. And uh, it's really a sense of uh, partly it's knowing, it's having that quality of ability not to have things just kind of get at one in a startled way, that you can have some protection. Because maybe it's related to some of where you were coming from, that sometimes there are people who are sending negative energy towards you. How to protect oneself is an important part of all this. It's a piece. It doesn't change the overriding aspiration. So let me end here so we can have a little time for talking with each other. Maybe just to sit quietly, let it settle for 30 seconds or a minute and see what, see what comes up for you. Thank you for your very kind attention, good questions, and, you know, I think we probably could stay with, <coughs> stay with this topic and stay here for another few hours, <laughs> right, because it's a big one. So, any questions, reflections, comments, please, in the back, uh, please. Uh, I, I just wanted to uh, tell you that um, when you were talking about mindfulness and, and, and talking about chiseling, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I find it very helpful. The, the, the shield? No, no, the, uh, uh, where you said chiseling away on the uh, mindfulness. Oh, yeah. On the old room. Oh, yeah. So, the, so the, the comment, maybe we should use the microphone for any future comments, that the, um, the image that we used before of uh, talking about old uh, neural pathways and new neural pathways, that there could be different images that you know, the notion of setting up alternative pathways, one image, another image might be of some, some of an older pattern being, being weakened, you know, being weakened or, and a, a new one be, becoming stronger was, was helpful. The, yeah, we have the, we work a lot with images, the imagination. How many people found that shield exercise helpful? 
and maybe think of using it yourself. You know, so it doesn't work for everyone, but for a lot of us it does. Other reflections, questions? Oh, a lot, a lot. So we have maybe in the front row here. And, uh, I, had, I had a very, very, very interesting, res- a very, very interesting response to yeah. you asking what is your response yeah. to this difficult person yeah. inside yourself. Yeah. And um, an extremely violent person that's a part of my life that, that really enjoys inflicting violence yeah. on other people, that you do feel a sense of justification. How can this person live this way? Yeah. And when I noticed my response, it was violence towards that person, yeah. which I hadn't really looked at in yeah. that way. Yeah, it's a great comment that um, really seeing how sometimes when we get extreme, in extreme situations where people are intending harm in ways that seem, could, be, could seem violent or whatever, that our reaction may be violent in return. And we may have energies that we hardly knew were in us, right? And it's, I think, and it's actually, when you actually look as to maybe how the original violence formed, it may have formed in the same way. You know, I was thinking, I, I remember, I, mean, I remember, I was thinking particularly of uh, youth violence. And I remember reading a study from the American Psychological Association which said that the greatest single correlate for youth violence is that they have had violence done to them. The greatest single correlate. So it's a, this is a lot of what all of these teachers were studying, or the great teachers. They talk about cycles, cycles of violence. You know, Hoar, I was thinking of, um, yeah, I was thinking there was another, actually I had a student who did a dissertation in which she was teaching yoga to juvenile sex offenders. And a lot of them had tremendous progress from that, from that work. And what they found was that for a lot of it was insight that the juvenile sex offenders came often to see when they were supported and in this very constructive program, they came to see that they were in cycles of having felt hurt and wanting to inflict hurt on others. And, that, and they were caught in those cycles. And that, and they came to understandings of that. And I think that's, and, and yet when we have something negative coming towards us, our first impulse may be defensive. And we, like, like I was saying earlier, it's very hard to be empathic when we're being attacked, right? And yet the practice points towards that possibility. Again, we want to protect ourselves. That's why that last point I made is important. You know, it's important to come to some way of feeling relatively safe. So this isn't just to mindlessly be empathic in a, in a way that brings harm towards oneself. And we have to have wisdom and skillful response. But again, looking at some of the people who we might take as exemplars, it is possible to go in that direction. It's a slow process with the most difficult or extreme. That's why in metta and a lot of these practices, we build up to the most extreme by working with mildly or moderately difficult. We don't at all go right to the most difficult. That's how we practice. If we went right to the most difficult, we wouldn't get anywhere, most likely. Yeah. 
So please, right in, right in back, back of you. Um, I don't know if this is a question or just a yeah. comment, but um, I have, I find that sometimes it's hard for me to let go of, I guess, my attachment to a return feeling. Yeah. It, this happens a lot with my kids. You yeah. know, I'll meditate and have loving kindness and have all these great things. Mm -hmm. And then I try and interact with them and I'm not getting that back. Yeah. And there's kind of an anger, like, I've done all this work and I'm trying to be loving, kind. And, you know? <laughs> and um, so that's something that for me is kind of, even with non, well, I guess they yeah. could be my difficult person, but, um, you know, letting go of that need to get something back. Kind of. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, isn't it? You know, that, that, that uh, question of uh, uh, we can do this practice and what happens if we don't think we're reciprocated or feel we're, reci we're reciprocated, right? It's hard. Um, you know, or isn't this supposed to work on the other as well? <laughs> uh, and... You know, the main locus of one's own inner work in terms of where it actually uh, is efficacious is oneself. And yet it's hard when we, uh, and so that, you know, it's it actually, again, we can have a little bit of a shift in our minds. The purpose of the inner practices is primarily so that we can be responsive and caring in the moment, no matter what happens. It can be a secondary result that it affects others. And we can also think that, you know, one way to look at what we're talking about here, it's a kind, we might say, I hope this isn't misunderstood, it's a kind of unilateral disarmament. Or it's, it's a way of saying, um, you're in a conflict with me, I will work on my part of what uh, contributes to the conflict, let's say. And if I actually stop engaging in behavior which perpetuates the conflict, it's pretty hard for the other person to keep on doing it. But there will be a lag time. <laughs> so maybe, maybe in the lag time, it may take a while. So maybe you're in the lag time. But it's, or, you know, or sometimes with certain people, they're so caught up in their energy, they're going to do what they do no matter what. You could have the Dalai Lama in your house, you know, and they would still do it. Maybe, maybe not the Dalai Lama, but, you know. Your kids. Yeah, you could have the Dalai Lama in your house, your kids would still be your kids exactly the same way, right? So, so that's good to remember that, because if the if Dalai Lama might have exactly the same results you have, and so it's a reason, obviously, not to be hardening yourself. So, so I think that's important. The main purpose of this is so that we can be responsive. Again, can be effects on others, for sure. Yeah. Please, right next to you. Yeah. Uh, my, um, I'm a grandmother, and I now am spending more time in California, and part of my personal mission is to um, pick up my grandkids after school, help them with homework, you know, make a nice meal for my family. And um, that can be a formula for me. And you know, one of the things I work on is then I'll get resentful that I don't get the appreciation. Yeah. But I, one of my, um, one of my um, you know, kind of tricks for dealing with that is I always say, they'll appreciate me in about 40 years. I'm dead, but they now remember this is how you give. <laughs> you know, I mean, there has to be humor there because I don't, I think family can be the most 
difficult yeah. of the um, energies that we yeah. have to work with. And um, I do it really because it's my personal commitment. But yeah. But then it's all the challenges that come with it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's well yeah. said. And maybe I'll just end with a few thoughts about that. That uh, this issue of I do this practice and where is the reciprocation? Where is the appreciation? I'm just doing it myself and in my lonely meta <laughs> world, <laughs> you know. And I think, I think that's a hard one, isn't it? I mean, there's a yearning for basically being understood, being known, for reciprocation, for that, uh, you know, for what Dr. King called the beloved community, for that sense of connection and understand, mutual understanding, it's a deep aspiration. And it's hard when that's not there. You know, and and often in these situations, particularly some of the difficult ones, it's not going to be there, right? And so, how do you keep your commitment when it's not reciprocated? And so, it actually invites us to a deeper level, which I heard you as going to, you know, to say, okay, I you basically said, I want to live like this, no matter what the reciprocation is, right? That's my commitment. It's hard, you know, and you can we can work with how it's difficult, how we you know, get frustrated or disappointed or feel lonely or, you know, don't feel reciprocated, all those. But ultimately, we can take all of that as uh, a practice, hard practice, you know, very hard with the most difficult ones, that we um, take it as an invitation to go a little deeper and recognize that that's bound to happen, that it doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong when we don't get reciprocation. That's real important. You know, and that there are moments when this practice can be lonely, for sure. You know, that's why coming here and, you know, and connecting or having a few like-minded people, hey, how's your unilateral disarmament going? <laughs> <laughs> well, not much reciprocation this week. <laughs> I thought, oh, me too. Oh, it's great to have you. We can, we can connect around our mutual... I'm so happy to share my disappointment with you. <laughs> so, I mean, that's real. I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but that's actually very significant. So, okay. So, how many of you would like to continue for another week and look at difficult people? If you do have them, some of you may not have them. In <laughs> okay, so we'll invite those practices. Remember, you can think of the four practices, ethics... Mindfulness, just tracking what's there. Metta, and some of the wisdom reflections, which could mean to think of what's there for the other person, or what's the causes and conditions that lead to us having this difficult interaction, or that are there for the other, can possibly be, lead one to be empathic. What really is going on for the other person? What really matters to that person that's leading to frustration, or whatever? You know, or even in possible to do that even in the most extreme examples, like I was mentioning some of the uh, people who were, um, had been convicted of crimes, even. One can do that and see the history and the, and the past. So I think we'll explore that next time. I think I may bring in another recording like I did last time. And last time I brought in something from Dr. King and maybe bring in a little bit there. But I'll continue and I'll focus also some on the inner on the way that there can be deep, uh, we, we can have our own inner enemies. You know, there are outer enemies, outer difficult people, and there are aspects of ourselves which are difficult and hard to, 
hard to relate to. Okay. So let's just sit now with um, your sense of what may have uh, mattered for you most this morning and your sense of intentions for the next week. We offer the fruits of our time together, the fruits of our practice, uh, out into the world. May our practice, our reflections, our time together be of benefit to ourselves. May they be of benefit ultimately towards, with all um, those we're in contact with, and then ultimately for all beings without exception. So thank you so much for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.